0: Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics podcast,
1: a podcast
0: where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer
1: discernment, argue for a healthier approach and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool, too. (laughs) You're like, check it. We keep it (laughs) real. That's so bad. You're awesome.
0: Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. And I'm Amy. And so this is our first time recording after a couple weeks off where we were preparing for the Women in Apologetics Conference, even though there's not going to be any kind of gap when we post these. But uh, we had a great time at the conference, Amy. What what were your thoughts?
1: Oh, my gosh. It was so much fun to... I, for one uh, i've never been in an apologetic conference where there were so many women together uh, i thought that was just so neat because there's yeah. just this sweet fellowship that you have um, my favorite was sitting in on the keynotes and looking over and seeing this mom with her little baby she's like bouncing him around and and everything and'm I just thought this was so cool I was like only in women in apologetics are there you know moms with their babies and then there was an art show uh, that was awesome there was worship music that were um, it was an apologetic worship songs and everything i was like this is so cool i've been to several apologetic conferences i've never had one that i've been to that was so creative and uh, and just so different and then of course you know there, there's mom bringing their teenage sons and kids and it was just it was just sweet fellowship i think that's probably the best way i can describe it it was just such a blessing to be there
0: and I, I have to laugh. We had a little sign-up sheet for Mama Bear Apologetics, and there was these two names written on the back that I had no idea what they were for <laughs> until Amy told me it was because there was some sweatshirt a lady had on that she liked, and it, you know, brought back memories to the very first Women in Apologetics conference that we did, where we're like talking about shopping and shoes, and then we're talking about the Kalam, and then we're talking about, you know, it's like, and so our conversation was able to go back and forth between these apologetics topics. And fashion, which apparently is now in year
1: three, still going on with your little (laughs) note on the back. (laughs) Well, and it was so fun too. like, because all of us ladies together, you know, we're all rooming together. And you know, even just to wake up in the morning, like, Oh my gosh, we got to get up early, get out the door, get everything packed up. And like the first words out of some mouths were just, Hey, have you been thinking about the Trinity? I mean, it's just like, when do you have that opportunity to share a hotel room (laughs) with a bunch of ladies and just wake up super groggy and looking beastly and then just start talking the Trinity as you're getting ready to go. I mean, it was just, it's just awesome. That was fun. I did like it.
0: So uh, anyway, if anybody would like to see the sessions that went on there, you can still go to the Women in Apologetics webpage and you can get the live stream. Obviously, it's you can't go back in time, so it's not live anymore. But it will be the four keynote sessions. And then I think there is three sessions that were recorded in the main room, three of the breakouts. I believe we had the the one on Krista and Uh, Monique did on critical race theory, which I highly, highly recommend. Oh my gosh, that was so good. So enlightening. Yes, it was really good. We need to have them on at some point. Then we had Natasha Cranes uh, talking about uh, just teaching, talking to your kids about this stuff. And then we had AJ Roberts, who works with. Reasons to believe, given kind of one of her science talks. So you'll have all those, and you'll have the Q and A at the end, which I think the Q and A was really good. Um, we kind of changed it up a little bit, and someone actually uh, printed out the questions. So someone someone actually criticized it, saying it didn't look as spontaneous, but it was actually as a as a question answer. It was really nice that someone right before we went on said, "Here's the questions, real quick," and so and then Lori got to pick which ones we did. Uh, so it was it was a really great time and I, I again i highly recommend going back and getting the live stream uh, just so you can go through and watch those so since this is our first time recording again since uh before we didn't know exactly which podcasts we're gonna be dropping when just because we try to record in advance and so it's just really unfortunate that the topic that we're discussing on the last podcast and today's which i think we might we might try to make them drop at the same time just to keep them together, but happens to be on, does the Bible advocate for slavery? And it happens Mm. to be in Black History Month. That was... Not on purpose. That that is just the way the cookie crumbled in terms of the chapter that we were at in the book. So I'm not sure if that makes it insensitive or if it makes it rele- uh, relevant. Um, it's it's one of those two. So just so you know, we didn't plan it out like that. It might be a happy accident. It might not be, but I'm not sure which. So I just I, I want to go over kind of what we had talked about on the previous podcast. So what we're doing on this one is similar to what we did with the Simon Brace talk on spiritual warfare, and if someone has already talked about something that was so good and it's recorded. There's no sense in reinventing the wheel and trying to do it ourselves, but we are going uh, slower and kind of putting it on pause and discussing the thing. So the one with Simon Brace was back in December. We're now doing the series that my husband did, a talk at a place called the Bible and Beer Consortium. It's where you have a whole room full of half atheists and half Christians that meet over uh, some uh, restaurant and they talk about different either apologetics or political or whatever topics. And so the one that my husband was presenting on was, does the Bible advocate for slavery? And since Dawkins brought that up in the book, um, as one of his major things, he kind of starts the chapter off talking about it. And then he talks about a bunch of other little random things. And then he ends the chapter. So we can't say that it's like the biggest theme, but the fact that he starts and ends the chapter with that topic leads me to believe that that's what he did want to talk about. He just didn't talk about in it, it. But right. even, even if he didn't, this is one of those things, would you say, Amy, that you, you do you hear this still coming?
1: You know, and it's funny because it's, I've seen it mentioned in TV shows at times that people will sort of bring it up as this sort of slam dunk against, uh, against Christianity. So it still is sort of swirling around, especially um, whenever there's political things that are going on, this ends up coming up. So I still think it is relevant today. I don't think it's as much of a big issue. Like I don't hear it as often as I hear maybe challenges with science and that sort, but it still is there enough that we, we need to help our kids understand the issue.
0: Yeah, we need to help them understand the issue. And this is one of those that is just really, in fact, it, it's really difficult to nuance. And in, in fact, that's why I was going to kind of preface what we went over on the previous podcast, because I think John does a really good job at prefacing this this talk. And so here's kind of some bullet point notes of how he prefaced basically getting into the meat of the matter in the previous podcast. So first off, he's, he had three points that not everything in church is Christian. Mm. And this is one of the things that I see people talk about because there were Christians advocating for slavery. People say Christianity advocates for slavery, yeah, which is not the case. And that's a, a bad habit to get into because people claiming to be Christians have advocated for a whole lot of stuff that is not Christian. But we have to look at the abolitionist movement for doing away with slavery. I think there's only one society in history that has ever abolished slavery outside of a Christian influence. So we have to say there's probably something in scripture that condemns slavery, because we see that when a society becomes really predominantly Christianized, that's when they're able to abolish slavery. So again, people will say, well, which is it? Does Christianity advocate for it or does it not advocate for it? So these are some of the nuances we're talking about. So not everything in church is Christian. That was his first point. Uh, second, not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. So Amy, you will remind us what the difference is Pre between
1: prescriptive and descriptive? Prescriptive means that it's an ought claim. This is something you should be doing. Whereas descriptive is just describing a situation, the way people acted, um, things that went on. Obviously, are there are things in the Bible that are uh, descriptive. We hear about men of God uh, doing things that we would say, no, that's that's not what Christian men do. They don't go and take somebody else's wife or uh, that sort of thing. And those are descriptive things. But we can't conflate the two because once we do, then all of a sudden that opens the gate for pretty much anything. So there has to be that distinction between what the Bible tells us to do and what the Bible describes as what's happening.
0: Yeah. And so then finally, not everything back then is for today. And John goes into something called ethical trajectory, where it's talking about if the Bible is describing kind of where we want to be instead of where a a culture is right now, uh, that's an ethical trajectory. so it's like you're having to ask, you're having to answer questions that were relevant for the people at the time, which means you have to kind of address issues that were go- actually going on even if the situations going on are not something you would want to happen. So just because the Bible talks about slavery at certain points because it's dealing with a people who basically every society around them treats slavery as the norm, that doesn't mean that slavery itself should be the norm. It just says that it, it was the norm then. And so if it's giving kind of what do you do in this situation back then, that doesn't mean we should in, reinstitute slavery so we can fully follow the Bible. That's that's not what it's saying. Right. We also, in the previous podcast, talked about the challenge of implementing uh, mass societal changes. Uh, in, in this, I would like to, we went back and listened to that. It, I thought of some of the things that we said reminded me of the critique that Martin Luther King had when he was sitting in prison and he had different evangelical leaders coming to him and saying, well, we have to go slowly on this. We can't, you know, this whole racism thing, you know, you it's got to change slowly. No, society was at the place where they had the ability to enact laws and it needed to happen then. And so, when we're talking about how it takes a long time for society to come around and, again, the ethical trajectory, we're not using the same arguments that that people were saying to Martin Luther King. There is some similarities, but I think that that was honestly just laziness of not tackling an issue like it could be tackled when we had the ability to do so. Next, I would say to not judge previous societies for not appealing to solutions that we have now back when they didn't have it. I know that's like a lot of negatives mm. all in a row there. But it's this idea that we have solutions like, um, say, welfare or food pantries or getting a loan or, you know, lots of different things for if someone, you know, a homeowner's insurance, you know, if there's a flood, we have all these solutions that we appeal to that they Mm -hmm. didn't have. If you were in the, the first century or even before back then and your crop, you know, something caught fire and your whole crop was destroyed. You didn't have any of these backups. So what do you do in this situation? You sell yourself into slavery. That's how you provide for your family. And so we can't say, well, they should have just lent them money. Well, they didn't have a baking system, you know, or they, they should have had these things in place for welfare for if this happened. They, they didn't have any of those things. So we can't judge them for not using our solutions. So that that was another prefacing point that John made. Uh, and then finally, he talked about how history and context is king uh, and also, I think you and I did at the very beginning of the last one, is that when people hear the word slavery, that has a lot of baggage. Yes, it does. Connected to it. No, absolutely. And so the final thing he talks about is how history and context is king. And so we really want to reinforce that there are different forms of slavery. <laughs> that Again, this is one of those words that has so much baggage. And I think it has so much baggage because it's really not that far away in our American history. Like honestly, no. it's not. It's it's not that long ago that we had um, the chattel slavery, or even just like you know the pre Civil War chattel slavery is not that far in our rearview mirror. So when people think of slavery, that's immediately what they think of. So I just want to encourage everyone listening to realize that the form the forms of slavery that they had in the Old Testament would be really similar, there's some of them that are very, very similar to just employer and employee. If, if we want to think about it, Daniel rose to the second highest ranking in the kingdom. So this would be like a vice president who was also technically a slave. You would never have seen that happen with pre-Civil War chattel slavery. So yeah. these kind of slaveries are very, very different, not to mention that it talks about in the Old Testament, basically the penalty for anyone kidnapping someone and then selling them into slavery was death. So that verse alone tells us that this is not the type of slavery that we are talking about uh, because anyone engaging in that should be put to death. Thus saith the Lord. So anyway, that would be the last thing for the context. And we're going to continue on with John's talk and just kind of discuss it as we go just because, again, he's very thorough in this topic. And I think this is one of those topics that you really can't be thorough enough in just because there's a lot of finger pointing going on. But the, the place that we're starting in with this talk here, is John is saying how the Bible doesn't condemn slavery as much as we Christians would like to say it does, but the Bible doesn't advocate for slavery in the way that critics of Christianity claim it does. So basically, nobody's going to be happy. So what he's trying to do is present a fair case for this. And so he's going to go through kind
1: of all the damning verses, I guess, that, that would be condemning. He presents the first side as, okay, here's all the verses that the atheists uh, are getting this front, or this idea that the Bible advocates slavery from. So he's going to look at sort of the the evidence against, mm-hmm. and then he's yeah. going to go against the evidence or present the evidence for. So it's it's just this nice sort of balanced approach that he offers. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because it's a bad idea to only present the evidence that supports your case. You really need to know, if you really want to interact with an idea, you need to see what what evidence the other side is presenting and understand their argument as and present it the way that they would present it. So John's actually really good with doing that is, is presenting things fairly. So without further ado, we'll continue on with uh, with his does the Bible advocate slavery talk.
2: That's just that that's kind of saying worldview wise. We need to remember that if we're going to have moral high ground, we need to earn it. We can't presume it. If a Christian is going to claim moral high ground, they need to earn it too. And can't presume it. Now, what's the damage? The Christian case for slavery, for slavery. So this is the these are the concessions I'm making so that I'm not being dishonest here. Christian teachers have advocated slavery in the past. Uh, I, think, I think some of these were brought up. You can probably find a lot in the in the antebellum south in the US. Uh, Christians have practiced slavery, a lot of well-regarded ones. You can even find uh, biblical characters in the pre-Christian era who, who kept slaves. Christianity has coexisted in slaving societies. And then several biblical passages presume or permit slavery by giving instructions for slaves and masters on what's the proper conduct in, in going about with slave practices. So biblical passages like 1 Timothy 6.1 and 1 Titus 2, 9 through 10, submitting to one's master is deemed a religious duty. And then Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, slaves are to submit to their masters. Masters are allowed to keep slaves. And then Leviticus 25, 44 through 46, even priests can keep slaves and pass them on as inheritance. And there's others. I've got some just for the sake of time that I reserve to the end to address, but this is not a good starting place for folks that want to say that there's a simple biblical answer that says, nope, that doesn't, we never supported that, we wouldn't support that, that was only heretics that did that. The case is too strong uh, to, to make that simplistic judgment. Now, Robert Spencer in an article in First Things says, taken at face value, the Bible condones slavery. The Apostle Paul says flatly, "Slaves, be obedient to those who are your earthly masters, with fear and trembling, and singleness of heart, as to Christ." Ephesians six five. He wasn't saying anything remotely controversial. There weren't any atheists saying, "Stop that! That's awful." <laughs> not, not that I know of, at the time, because it was a convention. It was a, it was a cultural convention, and of course, it has been criticized for apparently accepting this cultural status quo instead of challenging it. No culture on earth. Christian or otherwise, ever questioned the morality of slavery until relatively recent times. Now, we've gone through some of the, the preface. We've assessed some of the damage here. Now let's look at a general negative case. The negative case against slavery is that not everything in church is Christian. This is something that, that sometimes gets lumped under the no true Scotsman fallacy oh, that pastor wasn't representing the Bible, or that church doesn't represent Jesus, and and they'll say, oh, that, that uh, doesn't represent us. Well, there's a reason why Christians say that. We've got an orthodoxy, and things that fall outside of it, we don't have to claim. We don't have to say, oh, that's true of us, because if someone is veering from orthodoxy, and they say, uh, you know, only the New Testament is true, and the Old Testament is false, and then they go off and start a, a death cult, we don't have to claim that. That's, that's not a true Scotsman because he's not from Scotland. So that's not a, not a fallacy. That's just being honest about it. Now, when you have a very austere orthodoxy where you've only got one principle, then pretty much everything can fit in your orthodoxy. We've got a fairly elaborate orthodoxy. Now, the, the borders are very disputable. What differences between Catholics and Protestants? We can We can haggle over that all day long. But we still have, even when we take a generous sense of it, there's a lot of things that we could say that has no part in the church of Christ. Christ, not Christians, defines Christianity. We expect Christians to act like fallen hypocrites. That's that's normal. Uh, Christianity makes no claims that its members are perfect. If you find a church that has no hypocrites there, don't go there because you'll ruin it. <laughs> or, Or they they can they can never say the church is not full of hypocrites they've always got room for one more so you're you're still welcome to it but don't expect them to think they're perfect and don't judge them by a perfect stand- standard because that's that's actually a heresy to think that christians will live a perfect life here on earth they don't expect that now many times they put on a you know pretty face and pretend like they got it all figured out and that's that's so annoying you want to slap them but don't slap them <laughs> Now, some degree of abuse and misuse is expected among even believers. It's not enough to show that Christians have done evil things; we grant that. One must show that they did so because of their Christianity.
0: I think that's a that is a major, major point right there yes. um, that he made: the difference between uh, Christians doing something evil. Versus them doing something evil that was legitimately justified by a Christian worldview.
1: Right. No, I, I completely agree because I've I've seen that used in the past too to say, well, look at the atrocities that so-and-so has committed. It's because, you know, they're, they're Christians. Obviously, Christianity is wrong. It's, wait a second, were those atrocities uh, prescribed to them by Christianity or was that something they were just doing and then they were mm-hmm. just trying to justify it, which we see people, you know, people do that all the time. You try and justify your behavior and it's an important distinction to remember. I have a theory that you can basically justify anything you want if you
0: misquote the Bible. Like there's really nothing that you can't justify using some Bible verse somewhere. Hmm. This is why a systematic theology is so important is we have to look at what does the Bible say across the board. If you, again, if you just cherry pick verses for one thing or another, and you're not taking context into account, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. But that's why we would say, no, let's look at what scripture as a whole says and judge it based on that. And this is where it's also very difficult within atheism is since there's not like some atheist, I'm well, there probably is an atheist manifesto, but there's not anything that's binding for all atheists hmm. uh, that you can point back to it and say, this is what y'all teach. There is nothing like that. So within the atheist community, you can't hold a specific standard and say atheism teaches this or doesn't teach this. All it teaches is that there is no God. But with Christianity, you can hold it to a standard. You have to show me that this is what Scripture as a whole says and not this one Bible verse that you just picked out of context. Mm. So anyway, I thought that was an important enough point to, to, to stop and discuss. Yeah, definitely.
2: Now, that case can be made. I've seen very, various levels of academic argument to this effect, and that deserves an academic response. Well, let's not just drop a meme on them and think we, we you know, superheroes solve this. <laughs> uh, not everything in Scripture is promoted. This is a critical difference. Casuistic law versus apodictic law. Casuistic means case law. Apodictic is basically do this and don't do that. Case law says if this, then that follows. If this thing is not going on, then that doesn't follow. So what that means is if X is going on. So, for example, uh, if you have a slave, then... And then the Bible will give instructions on that. That does not say, and it should never be, law code should not be read apodictically when it's case law. Look for those contingency clauses. This is what you gotta got to do to be fair if you're going to read uh, legal documents today or if you're going to read ancient legal documents back in 1400 B.C. Scripture has negative examples. I've heard people talk about the the psalm that talks about uh, babies having their heads dashed against rocks, and they say, oh, look what your Bible has, and they think that's saying, do this. Look at it in context. Look at the historical context. It's not saying that. Now, it's graphic. It's violent. But when you're talking to a people that were just plundered and pillaged and destroyed in a similar way, I kind of understand where they're coming from. Not saying that it's a right thing to wish, but if the Bible were put into, like, song form it would not sound like christian radio yeah not at all i mean you might have some of your your lazy country songs you might have some of your classical music some light lilts and that pretty stuff but you're going to have some heavy metal in there yeah when you get to some of the songs man <laughs> these guys are angry and it makes sense and that's kind of heartening to me because that means the bible is not this simple uh plain jane something that's that says you have to like subpar media if you're going to be a christian <laughs> Because the Bible's not like that. The Bible has variety and depth to it. Uh, So, for example, David's rape of Bathsheba is in there. Don't do it. It's a bad thing. And the text, if you read it in context, says don't do that. Uh, Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Bad idea. Hebrew enslavement in Egypt. There's a lot that revolves around this. And if you don't read the text correctly, just being fair to the text, then you might think things that are saying how awful it was in Egypt— are, you might revert it and think that they're saying do that when it's the opposite.
0: I would, I would even say to that is there's a whole bunch of different passages where it's talking about when it is discussing slavery, that it says because you were slaves in Egypt, basically don't do what was done to you. That is not the way to do this. And, uh, you know, again, in a society where uh, slave slavery was. The only option for again, like the debtor slavery, all the things that we've talked about, or instead of killing everybody that you just conquered, and of course, everybody wants to act like, oh, why were they conquering people? That's how they that's how civilizations worked. There is that's how if you didn't have enough crops for your people, you had to go somewhere else and conquer someone else to get crops. So you have the if-then statements there, if you have a slave then do it like this and don't do it like that because you yourselves were slaves in Egypt. And I brought you out of that. Don't do it again. Right. Yeah. You don't want to look just like the folks that you were freed from. Yeah, exactly. You you don't, don't be like the people that I brought you out from. So continuing on.
2: And the rape of Dinah and then dashing baby's heads against rocks, all bad stuff, all reported in scripture. Cause it has scandalous stuff just like you'd see on HBO. Now, not everything for them in that theocratic context, that is fusion of church and state, mosaic law era, not everything for them is for us. Scripture speaks relevant to culture. Now, we'll get to in a second, but it has timeless principles that transcend any and every culture, but it also has has a, a voice that speaks into culture saying, here's how to redeem your culture at least a little bit within your reach. The same absolute principle, value, or virtue applies differently to other cultures. And if you don't know the historical context, you're going to have a hard time figuring out what principle was at work there because you'll read it in a wooden literal fashion. Like it's all about the length of your dresses and how you cut your hair and what food you eat. Those things reflect a principle that don't make sense in our cultural context unless we translate it into our context. That's what good interpretive method means. Biblical interpretation demands application only along comparable lines. When our culture or circumstances differ widely from theirs, we can't apply it in the same way they did. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. We can throw it out or trash heap. I'm not saying any of that. I am saying that if you don't know what it said back then in that context, then you don't know the principle that perhaps could be applied into our context, and you won't know how to translate it for today.
0: I just want to say that listening to this, it it could make John sound a little bit like a relativist, like he's saying that you can take all scripture and say, oh, it's all context. He is not saying that. I know my husband, (laughs) and that is not something he would say. He's talking specifically about this topic. Um, He's not saying that basically everything in scripture is just a cultural thing that you can reinterpret. So I just wanted to make that disclaimer.
2: If they're talking about uh, not cutting the the curly locks of your hair on the sides of your face, if you don't know why they said that, then you might treat that just as some formality about how you're supposed to cut your hair. And I don't think that's what it was getting at. Now, compare the ideal of marriage given to Adam with that given to Moses or Paul. Now, Moses was in a different cultural context. His is, is the Mosaic Covenant, as it's called. And if the story about Moses is true. If he actually did have those encounters, if they did see the miracles, uh, you know, crossing the Red Sea, the plagues in Egypt and so on, if those things really happened, then we got justification to take Moses seriously when he says, God told me this. Well, how do you, why should I trust you? And, and then he's like, well, look at that, that wall of water back there. And look at all of these plagues that it took to, to uh, evacuate a slave population from Egypt. So if those things really happen then we've got reason to trust that Moses is uh, knows what he's talking about but even then the law given to him was given to a people that had just been freed from slavery a people that all they knew was slavery a people that didn't have a central government a people that knew nothing of democracy <clears throat> a people that didn't didn't have familiarity with fine foods they they uh, were not used were used to being told everything that they had to do legalistically because that's the environment they lived in what kind of society would you help that people into to help them step closer to something more redemptive than just chaos in the desert and then the last challenge uh in the negative case is let's say you do better now i just gave some hints as to what the hebrew context would have been back in say uh, leviticus numbers deuteronomy where you where your your juiciest Quote pro-slavery texts are found. Uh, what would you do to help a society that all they knew was slavery to get out of that, so that they could they could um, actually accomplish abolition? By the way, accomplish abolition about a thousand years before anyone else in the world ever did. Uh, so others fared worse. Now, as far as religions go, Jainism is is a a fairly rare one. I don't know if you know anything about Jainism. It's kind of like Hinduism on steroids. Uh, It's a very extreme version of it. They were too weak as a cultural influence. They didn't really have the sway to to accomplish abolition. And their central ethic is indifference, being unaffected by life, very stoic. And that's not necessarily going to get people impassioned marching in the streets Mm -hmm. to abolish slavery. Now, Hinduism... Unfortunately, it had too heavy uh, a root base in racism and classism through the caste system. So slavery wasn't going anywhere there either. Uh, Buddhism was too indifferent and passive uh, to overcome the slavery in China and India. Now, I I did some historical research to see if there were any societies that abolished slavery before having been Christianized first. I could only find one. Uh, China had some efforts— under certain dynasties, but they were usually dead. The abolition movement was dead within a few years, and then it was reinstituted once uh, an empire was conquered and replaced with with new, more vicious uh, people. So abolition to succeed needs to do more than just communicate empathy and and a sentiment of abolition. It's going to take some muscle, which we'll get to in a second. China was kind of the same way. Uh, I'm sorry, India was kind of the same way as China. Islam there's a a theological challenge with Islam. Now there's a textual basis you can make to say that Islam is generally anti-slavery, but unfortunately, Islam is not defined by Muslims. It's not even defined by the Quran It's defined by Muhammad and adhering to Muhammad's life and practice is normally the vaulted standard that people try to live by. And he traded in slaves and he had slaves. Jesus never had slaves. Now, some of the patriarchs before him did, but if, if Jesus is the definition of Christianity, then we're going to, we're going to have a much different life and practice than, uh, say, a Muslim adhering to the life of Muhammad. Uh, Sikhism and the Baha'is are too small a movement, and they're too young. They're kind of new to it. so Now, they can kind of ride the wave of current abolitionist movements that started about the 19th century. But they weren't really there to to lay the seedbed to raise culture to that level that they would be able to abolish slavery eventually, and then atheism, uh, which was around for thousands of years before Christianity was, I would argue lacks the moral substance to do it in atheism. relativism is like let's not all atheists are relativistic or objectivist they take you know they diverge on the issue
0: so relativist versus objectivist, what he's meaning there is this idea of. Uh, objectivists would say that there's something that is wrong for all people at all time in all places. And there are a lot of atheists who would claim to have an objective moral standard. Matt Dillahunty, one of the guys that John has debated several times, believes very, very strongly that slavery being wrong is an objective moral standard that everybody needs to ascribe to. Mm -hmm. And that is why he has such a problem with scripture having verses about it. Uh, and why he doesn't believe that it's from God is how could God have possibly gotten something this big wrong uh, versus a relativist is uh, saying, well, you know, it's relative to the culture, it's relative to the person, all those things. And you'll see more of that mainly because as we talked about in our previous two podcasts about uh, can atheists be good without God, we said absolutely, yes, they can do good things, right. but they can't ground that goodness. yes. So that, that would be just him talking about objectivist versus relativist. So I just wanted to add that in.
2: Uh, relativism, I find, is too subjective, too trivial to be able to, to swing the moral leverage that it takes to abolish slavery. Now, objectivism would be great, but unfortunately, there, there isn't really a consensus on how atheists can grant moral facts. How do you get an, a moral ought from all the descriptive uh, facts about how nature happens to be?
0: Um, if you'd like more explanation on this, again, I would recommend John's article called "Nature's a Jerk, and we will post a, a link to that. And also the Mama Bear Apologetics book, chapter on moral relativism. We talk about the moral facts and the, the is-ought fallacy or the is-ought problem.
2: Take, take all the moral facts about how nature, I'm sorry, take all the natural facts about how it, nature operates. Bears do this. Uh, gorillas do that. People do this. Uh, babies do that. And you never get an ought. You just get descriptions of how things happen to operate. How do we get to how things should be if we're only operating from how things are? And that gap, I think, takes a mind. Now, atheists will oftentimes try to point to human minds and say we've got conventions. People can agree on these kinds of things. But that doesn't get you objective moral facts. That just gets you conventions. And frankly, conventional ethics are what established slavery as, as, a, as a cultural universal. Non-theism also lacks any textual, traditional, or historical dividing line to distinguish itself as abolitionists. Lacking any moral orthodoxy, it has no heresy, and thus embraces all atheists, even the slavers. Now, when we go back to that thought experiment at the beginning, what advice would you give to the slave girl? If she's in a culture that is locked in slavery, at least for for the foreseeable future how do we we give her counsel so that she can try to extract the most meaning she can within reach from her life and how can she live with dignity and honor and do the best that she can if we tout an abolitionist ethic that would just uh, would just get uh, would start a revolution get get it quelled and then they kill everybody and then bring in more slaves that's not a net gain So that was the context that the New Testament writers were addressing when they said, uh, urge bond slaves, I'm using the NASB here, other versions like I think the NIV might say slaves, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. First uh, Timothy 6.1, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider the masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. And then Ephesians 6:5 slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. These are really hard passages. But they're not being they're not speaking directly to people who have abolition within reach. Remember, this is a first century context. Rome wasn't going to going release its vice grip on slavery anytime soon. Rome would Rome would have to be overthrown before there would be any uh, wavering on whether Uh, slavery was going to be a cultural institution. And that brings us to a history lesson. One of the oldest, most universal institutions in world history, that's slavery. Uh, Most all races and ethnicities have been slaves and slave owners in the past. Now, I'm not using this to say, oh, your grievance doesn't matter because my people were enslaved back then, too. Or my people were enslaved before yours were. Or my ancestors didn't have slaves bunk your ancestors had slaves just keep going back and you'll find some (laughs) your ancestors were slaves just keep going back and you'll find some this is shared culpability shared guilt here slavery survived so long in part by lending military economic and political benefits doesn't morally justify it it just explains the utility of it it answers problems that today can be answered with prisons standing police forces banks And court systems. War, penal, and debt slavery expedite restitution in cheap, local, enforceable ways. Now, remember how I was talking about that the Jews were, uh, in the time of the Exodus, they were liberated from Egyptian conquest and, and were now a free people. But all they've ever known was slavery. But they also don't have a static culture yet, they're nomads for decades, they're going to be nomads in the time period in which we find, say, Exodus 20 and Exodus 21, where you got the Decalogue and the the Ten Commandments, and then you've got some of the procedural laws going from there. How do you prosecute uh, someone who's defaulting on their loans when one default might cascade in a domino effect of other people defaulting and other people defaulting, and then you've got a minor economic crisis? You don't have a a well-credentialed bank system with a heavy insurance backing so that they can just absorb it and you could declare bankruptcy. That wasn't an option. They needed solutions that were portable, that were quick, and that were effective. If you're going to say they should not have had, say, debt slavery or penal slavery, which is like judgment for crimes, then you need to offer something better. Otherwise, it's going to be an anachronistic fallacy, faulting them for not being our culture, which that sounds like you're, you're saying your culture's better than theirs. And you run a risk of uh, exposing that you're not a relativist, if, <laughs> in case you happen to be relativist. <laughs> Slavery allowed war prisoners to survive, it was awful. Slavery was terrible. But death could have potentially been worse. Now, in the Geneva Convention, we've banned that, but the Geneva Convention is a, is a modern thing. If you're going to try to force the Geneva Convention on a society that was, was uh, still uh, barbarian, like literally Vikings and stuff, and, and even more primitive than that, then you need to have a better solution. <clears throat> it reassured the poor of food and lodging, even if everything else was lost. Debt slavery did now concubinage is typically interpreted just as sex slavery but that's a historical misunderstanding depending on which culture you're dropping into to to identify that if you there were some kinds of concubinage uh, that were uh, really just that were just sex slavery but if you're going to look at the biblical context for when there were there was the practice of concubines this was a way that poor uh, women could marry up into society Their concubine status meant that they had full wife status, full civil rights of wives, but their children didn't receive inheritance. Their children would still be fed and cared for, but they wouldn't receive inheritance unless the man of the house adopted him into his family, too. So this was a way to make sure they had food and clothing and they could marry up. And frankly, this has been kind of a kind of a, a Victorian myth for a long time of, of uh, you know, peasant girls who dream of catching the prince's eye and so on. Uh, that's kind of uh, a more modern translation of what was happening in the B.C. era. It appears that most slavery in the ancient Near East, according to uh, Ronald Westbrook, uh, slave and master in ancient Near Eastern law, Chicago Kent Law Review, it appears that most slavery in the ancient Near East was ent- entered voluntarily. Now, voluntary slavery, that sounds like a contradiction in terms.
0: That's a pretty important point right there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you see that in Leviticus too. I was looking through Leviticus 22 and 25. And we just get these verses of you're not supposed to kidnap and drag people into slavery. But then it was talking about how do you get your servants and you can get them from other lands and that sort of thing. And it's not that you take them, but it's that they enter into it voluntarily even describes how Israelites would do that is if they were short on money, they would sell themselves or potentially sell their children into it to make sure that their kids, at least they would like, I I know at least my kid's going to have a bed to sleep in and food in his belly. It's a whole lot better than starving at home. They would do that uh, in, in occasion. But again, it was that servanthood.
0: So there's a lot of jobs where, you do not like what you're doing, you may not be treated very well, and you probably feel like you're not getting paid enough for what you're doing. And it feels like a slavery type situation. And I think the reason why it feels that way is that when we look at a lot of the slavery situations from the Old Testament, that is exactly what's going on is it's basically employer-employee, only instead of uh, signing a contract, which is that that's one of the things that we do now is we sign contracts, that would be the same thing there is you you know, signed a contract for a certain amount of time. And again, that could be if you're trying to pay off a debt or I think the the penal the penal slavery, basically the phrase repaying your debt to society is that phrase for a reason because that's literally what you were doing when you were a penal slave is you were the one, you know, like they, they kind of show it even in the early, um, I, I think it was like from 19th, 20th, early 20th century where you have the, the chain gangs that they're breaking up, Big rocks into little rocks mm. and stuff like that, or making license plates, they actually that, that would have been considered slave labor, because you have a, a captive audience that has to do this work. And that's outlawed now. So we're not when people say they've repaid their debt
1: to society. That's not actually the case. In some ways, it's it's a little bit like military service. I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to give this example, but in a way, there are some parallels. Uh, when you join the military, you sign up for a certain mm. amount of years that you're going to serve. You have to go through basic training. You have to abide by rules. If you up and decide one day, you know, I'm kind of over this military thing. I'm just going to leave. You, I mean, that, you just don't get to do that. You will end up in Leavenworth, or if you disobey, you can get um, you know, punished in ways and that sort of thing. So there is that sort of almost, signing up to be sort of a bond servant in that regard too with, with military service. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I
0: think John points out at one point that a lot of times Christians like to gloss over all of slavery as if it it were all the bond servant. And that's why he had the, the stuff at the beginning showing like, these are the kind of contentious verses where that's not exactly what's going on. It is something that is something that we don't agree with. Uh, and it's not the ideal. But there is a lot of that bond servant, uh stuff going on. And so we can't ignore that. And he gave that really long citation to show that this, this scholar says that was a majority of what was going on. So anyway, that's important to note. So we will continue on.
2: But voluntary slavery was basically a person selling the rights to themselves in a negotiated contract to pay off something, to compensate for something, uh, such as, as a, a, a war crime or a a civil crime, or just debt. That's the majority of what was going on. Now, context-wise, you can identify certain cases that that might not have been going on. I'm not saying it's all debt slavery, but a lot of it was. And if you want to assume that it wasn't, the burden of proof is is on those who say that it wasn't a case of debt slavery going on there, because that was uh, recognized by ancient Near East historians that uh, voluntary entrance was the norm. Liberation occurred in three ways in, in that in, say, a 1400 B.C. ancient Near Eastern context. There was redemption. You could pay off your original debt or say a family member pays it off for you. That happened. It probably wasn't that uncommon either. Uh, manumission. This is a release or you just complete the terms of your contract. So if your contract was uh, you own me for three years and that way you can just forgive that my daughter doesn't have a dowry. And she can marry your son and all is forgiven. That kind of thing happened. Um, So manumission would be either completing your contract so you're released by the terms of your contract or the person on the other end says, hey, you know what? Forget about it. I'm having a change of heart. You're, You're a better friend and I don't like you as a servant, so you're forgiven. That kind of thing happened too. And then cancellation of debt. This would be like a civil something beyond just a contract or an individual slave owner. Uh, Year of Jubilee is an example. Every seven years, Hebrew slaves were to be released, so they didn't stay in a cycle of slavery. And then uh, I mentioned it as fourth, but there's only really three uh, uh, reliable or commonly practiced ways to be free of slavery. Uh, Fourth was escape slash revolt, and that's not in most cases, a live option, because it tended to make slavery worse, and it didn't work. Or if it did work, uh, it only worked for some and was worse for others.
0: So I think we're going to go ahead and stop there. Um, Would you like to kind of give a summary of some of the stuff that we listened to today?
1: So what we covered today is a lot of examples of uh, how slavery was within the historical biblical context, some of the sort of presuppositions that we can come to the table with when we think of slavery. And uh, Dr. Ferrer just went into a lot of good examples of how in most cases, this was a bond servant type relationship that for the Hebrews was to be temporary and that there were ways to get out of this, whether it's your family uh, coming in and and paying off uh, the rest of your service uh, and liberating you from that. Uh, you could be released by manumission from your uh, your owners as well. If, if you've got kids, if you've ever read the book uh, Roman Diary, it actually covers it in that book and is a good way for kids to kind of understand the process. And then it talked about just sort of instead of leaving, you would actually be kind of brought in as part of the family. You'd be that that family servant become part of the, the family unit as a as a servant that would just remain, and so he's just kind of giving the background, uh, the culture of what we're seeing, some things that we need to have on hand when we're looking and dissecting this issue, and uh, and then just giving that sort of unbiased presentation of passages in scripture that appear to advocate for it, as well as historical context that we know of that say actually this it's not quite as bad as what we're thinking. Yeah,
0: and so like let's let's bring this down to the bottom line though. If if we're talking with kids about this, this what are some of well, I'll say what, some of the things that we need to make sure that because if we're reading through the Bible with our children, and I think we should be even the, you know, the icky parts, we're going to come across these passages and we're going to need to talk to them. And so I think some tips on how to talk to your kids about this is number one, to recognize that, that there is a difference in language. Uh, we have seen this in a lot of different ways. I think I mentioned at one point uh, how the Old Testament class that I did last fall, I was trying to answer the question, which part of the Old Testament covenant is still binding for Christians? And one of the problems that I came across was the fact that there was like 12 different words for the different types of law used in the Hebrew, and there was only two used in the Greek. And so trying to figure out which ones are applicable and which ones are not was really difficult because there was a language barrier. Mm. Uh, And again, I think this is one of the things that happened with Babel is that there, that that happens a lot. It says that he. I'm going to confuse the people by giving them all these different languages, and so we have to recognize when there is a word. If if there is a word that you react to really strongly that has a lot of linguistic baggage, uh, like slavery, then we need to that that should be our cue that okay, I, I need to really look at what this is saying. And for stuff like this, I really recommend the Bible that I use, which is the Cultural Background Study Bible. It has so much historical information that we're not going to get from the text itself exactly like, you know, what were ancient Near East practices and what what did this word mean then? And what kind of slavery was it talking about here? I think having your kids understand that sometimes words in the past mean something different than what we picture in our heads now is highly, highly important. Absolutely. And then secondly, just teaching them. And this is just basically what they're going to be learning in English class is looking at context and looking at history and we cannot jump to what does this verse mean to me? We have to first ask what did this verse mean to the people who originally it was intended for what did the per- what did the verse mean to the person writing it and what did it mean to the people to whom he or she was writing? That is also a question that can never be ignored whenever you are trying to talk about a really dicey subject. There's a a quote by, I think it's attributed to Voltaire. I've never been able to find exactly where he said it, but we'll just say it's Voltaire. And he says, if you wish to converse with me, first define your terms. Oh, interesting. I love that. And yeah, uh, I had a a small group leader, uh, this older man, Rock, he was Isn't that just a great name for like this old wise man is Rock. His name was Rock? Yeah. Well, actually, that was his his nickname. I I can't remember what his actual, I think his real name was Alan, but everybody called him Rock. So it was Rock and Sharon. But he would always say that if you wish to converse with me first, define your terms. And I don't think that we can stress this enough with our kids that when they start hearing words, again, we address this in book one of, uh, in chapter four of linguistic theft, that there's words that are being taken and changed. That means something completely different than the what they used to mean or what maybe one person thinks versus what another person thinks. But then again, we've got the linguistic baggage where we have a whole bunch of different meanings, all umbrellaed under the same word. Um, so teaching your kids to really be a paying attention to language is so important. So we're, we're going to preview the rest of this and see if we want to go through for a part three on this one. I think John might have made most of the points that we needed to make, main, mainly looking at context, looking at history. Um, looking at the different types of slavery, we might make this into a part three, or we might say we've got it good enough. So we'll decide on that later. But uh, in the meantime, Amy, would you like to pray us out for this very dicey, very sensitive topic?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Lord, we are so grateful that we are able to come and wrestle with these bigger issues. We're, we're thankful for for the amount of information that is still out there about how uh, just in the past we've had archaeologists and that sort of thing make amazing discoveries that we're able to understand the context, Lord. We're able to look back into history to see what was going on. We thank you for the plethora of resources that are out there. Um, but we also understand that there's a challenge to that, too. I mean, it, it takes fractions of a second to ask a question. And sometimes the answer can take books and even lifetimes of study to understand. And um, as a recent study just came out uh, not too long ago saying that the average attention span is less than a goldfish, less than eight seconds. And with issues like this, it, it oh, obviously God. takes longer than that to discuss. So I I pray for all those uh, parents, uh, grandparents, kiddos out there who are wrestling with this issue that they, that they go ahead and... Be bold and keep studying and keep digging, and that they um, that in their research that you give them opportunities to be able to pour out into others. We pray for their future interactions as well too. That those people have have patience and uh, the willingness to consider all the evidence that's out there, so that way we can have a proper understanding of culture and a proper understanding of of scripture and your Word, Lord. We pray for these parents as they are working hard to, to raise up their kids, that you will just encourage them. I know some of them are are tired, they're short on sleep and burnt out, Lord, but you know what, you are there with them every single moment, and I just pray that you will just uh, fill them up so that they will continue the the good fight and training up their kids in, in the way that they should go so that these kids understand that they're competent uh, with your word, Lord, so that when they venture out into the world, they know how to to use that, that armor, that spiritual armor that you have given us. In your holy name, amen. Amen.
0: This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at
1: www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions? maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes send us an email to ask the mama bears at gmail.com and we'll do our best rise up ladies rise up mama bears
0: we are all in this together